from quail and uh, water from a rock. And so they were dependent absolutely on God's daily provision. So in case they were going to get distracted by uh, thinking, well, we've got plenty, we don't need God because we've got, you know, a full fridge, so to speak. Uh, God said, take seven days and build for yourselves little booths, like little Wendy houses, really little tents that you're going to live in for seven days. You're going to eat your meals, you're going to sleep there. And that will be a reminder to you of what your ancestors uh, generations ago went through living in the wilderness. And there was a ritual that went every day as part of that, where the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would gather a huge quantity of water in jars. I don't imagine they did it personally, but they would have lesser slaves or servants to do it for them. But huge amounts of water every day would be carried up to the temple forecourts and the court of the Gentiles, um, sorry, not the court of the Gentiles, of course, the women, and would be poured out, uh, and the, the water was poured out in a massive big uh, splash, a huge symbolic gesture. And it was in that context that Jesus declared, I am the water of life, or the living water, sorry, I am the living water. And also part of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a celebration every evening where they had four enormous torches, menorahs, if you've seen what Jewish seven-branch candlesticks look like, and they would light these four menorahs, um, and so the place would be ablaze with light, and then the priests uh, would do a kind of uh, liturgical dance with burning torches. Uh, it was a kind of light show thing. And uh, it was in that context, probably, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus, from the context of the water and the light, talked about uh, who he was, the fulfillment, the giver of these things, but the fulfillment of them. Uh, but the whole narrative backdrop of chapter 7 and 8 is the refusal or the unwillingness or the inability of the people who he was uh, speaking to, living amongst, performing miracles in front of, to even recognize who he was. They kept coming back with their arguments about why he couldn't be the Messiah their arguments about why he was a heretic, he was possessed by a demon, they were descended from Abraham, they had the law, they were right, he was wrong, they knew better than he did, and, and so on. And on and on it went, and they just couldn't stop to consider that maybe, just maybe, here in front of them was more than just some uh, riffraff from up north, which is how they perceived the carpenter's son from Galilee. Okay, so park all that as background. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. 
His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. And so from a place of blind people not being able to see, even though Jesus was right in front of them, we come to a blind man not able to see with Jesus right in front of him. And there's the paradox, there's the contrast that John wants us to draw when he puts this story in this context. Because there's all these learned people who think they know, who think they've got the measure of who Jesus is, who think they've got it all together, who think that they're descended from Abraham, or who think that they've, you know, got uh, a first-class honors in, in rabbi school or priesthood or whatever, who are convinced that they are custodians of the truth and, in a sense, custodians of God, really, but they wouldn't like to put it in those terms. And so there are the people who claim that they can see. And here is a beggar, a man who used to beg, we're told. And they come along, uh, Jesus and his disciples, after the last um, standoff with the Jewish people who end up by picking up stones to stone Jesus because they're having a, a debate about their heritage being in Abraham, and then they accuse Jesus' heritage of being with the devil, and, and things get a little fraught and tense. And Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then they say, well, you're not 50 years old, so you say you've seen Abraham? How's that then? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And of course, to utter the words, I am, in the Hebrew ear is to utter the, the divine name, the name of God, the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say sent me when he sends him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And God said, I am who I am. And the name of God means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And so to say, I am, of yourself, and especially in that context and in that way, was a real reference to Jesus claiming to be divine. And so they picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus and his disciples slipped away. And so they're on their way, and then his disciples see this man, and a question arises in their minds. Who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And it's a question that I suppose, at some time or another, we've all toyed with. And we've either toyed with it out of uh, intellectual curiosity, 
or was toyed with it out of personal uh, anxiety or concern for someone that we love who's suffering? It's one of the big questions. You know, it's one of the big questions. Why does a good God allow suffering? Or where does suffering come from if God is sovereign and all-powerful, and yet in His world, which if He's in charge of, appears to contain suffering and distress? And there was an assumption, because in in kind of pre-scientific days, uh, and in a theocratic mindset, in a world where everything was, was, was ruled by God, then if people were suffering, then the assumption was that this was a judgment by God. They didn't seem to take account of uh, fallenness or the fact that, that sinfulness has, has swept up all that God created in its grasp. And so, there's an underlying assumption, an assumption that if God makes all things good, and if all things are not good, then there must be a reason for that. If God's willed it so, and it's not all good, then it must mean because He's displeased. He's either all-powerful, or He's chosen this as an outcome. And so, in their minds, they concluded that sin and that suffering and sickness and disease were, were sent as direct acts of judgment, that God had willed it to be so. And so, they ask this naive question. And sometimes we ask similar naive questions. We want simple answers to difficult, complex questions to which there often aren't simple answers. We want simple answers to complex questions about suffering because we want to understand, and we can't. But because we hurt, or more importantly, usually because somebody else is hurting, we get angry trying to work it out and look for causes and and reasons. And so they ask their question, was it the man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which, in a sense, is a strange kind of question. Because even to entertain the question, did the man sin to be born blind, assumes that the sin took place while he was still in the womb. (laughs) Because if you're born blind and the sin is a judgment, then you have to have sinned before you're born, right? Which is a strange kind of question. Although, I suppose there's a sense in which we can really and legitimately say that we have, all of us, come into this world born in sin. We've all of us come into this world having inherited a nature and a disposition that makes us prone to sin. I have yet to meet the child in over 24 years of ministry in my last place. I dealt with a lot of children And I've yet to meet the child whose parents sat down and, you know, said, well, son, or well, daughter, it's, you know, time for you to start your course of instruction on sin. I want to teach you how to sin. Because 
as far as my observations were concerned, one of the first words, certainly that any of my kids learned, was the word no. You know, it's, it's, pretty, it's up there with, with mama and something incomprehensible that only a parent knows that usually means banana or milk or whatever it is they like to eat. And no, there's usually kind of three early words. Dad comes later on. No one teaches us how to sin. We seem to find the capacity for doing our own thing. Now, some would say it's a survival instinct. You're establishing your own identity and you're uh, beginning the journey that will ultimately, you know, cut the, all the, the umbilical cords so that you make your own choices in life. But we all know what it is when we were kids to make choices that we knew were wrong. We knew what it was from even some of the kind of earliest parts of our lives to know what it was to sin. But this isn't the kind of sin they're talking about. Was it on account of the parent's sin that the man was born blind? After all, the law said that the sins of the father would be visited on the second and third generations. Is that what this was? And, and that's manifestly the case in our world today. There are people who are born into this world in pain or suffering. Sometimes, and I'm very careful and cautious about how I say it, but sometimes as a direct consequence of choices that parents have made. Sometimes those choices are unwitting. I'm a child of the 60s, and my mother was offered thalidomide for morning sickness by her doctor, but chose not to take it. But I was born in, the, in the, the period of time when there were lots of babies born who were the same age as me, whose limbs were affected by thalidomide because it wasn't known that there was a connection between that drug for morning sickness and uh, distorted or missing limbs on children. And so there's a sense in which unwittingly, not as a sin, but as an, uh, an innocent mistake on the part of the medical profession and so on. But there are other choices. There are children born with heroin withdrawal or fetal alcohol syndrome where their life chances are diminished because of choices that parents made. And so, yes, there's, there's observable evidence that the sins of the parents can be visited on the children. But the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about this question and answer is that Jesus doesn't answer the question the way they want. Because there is no simple, easy answer to complex questions of suffering. There is no one-size-fits-all answer that will give an account for every instance. And Jesus is far more interested in seeing the grace and the mercy and the glory of God revealed in this situation than in wrestling point for point on questions of theology or understanding which he knows his disciples would never be able to get their heads around. Instead, Jesus says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And there's a challenge in that answer for you and for me as well. Because this man is, is not just a laboratory experiment. He's not a little man in a test tube for Jesus to use 
to demonstrate his point. And nor does God treat people simply as objects to be used for his glory. But nonetheless, in the beautiful mystery and grace of God, God purposes to reveal his glory and glorify his name at the same time as bringing hope and life and healing and blessing to those who will yield to him, to those who will trust in him, to those who will submit themselves to him. This man, I suppose, is, is a picture, a, a, an illustration, a symbol of you and me. For all their great learning and superior wisdom, or so they thought, these Pharisees didn't know squat about God. They'd proved that. They didn't know the first thing because they couldn't even recognize right in front of them was the person of Jesus. And you know, when we start to think that we can know things about, we start to think that we know things about God, or that we've got our heads around God, then watch out. Watch out. Watch out if you think you've got this Christianity thing down pat and you know how to do it. You pretty much know how it works. Watch out if you think you can put God in a box because you know what he's like and what he'll do and what he won't do. Because my experience over the 40-odd years of walking with Jesus and of getting to know the Father and of living in the Spirit is that actually just when you think you know what he's going to do, he takes an interesting twist and does something a little differently. Because God is not a logical process. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of the processes. He works within them. He works outside them. He's not bound by them. He made them. He called them into being. And so this man presents us with a picture of how we receive the grace of God. And how this man came in a way that was more honest than the others. Because the others were blind, and yet they came presenting as seeing. They came as sorted. And yet Jesus said, you don't even know God. And they find this man, who in the eyes of his society and everybody round about him, was regarded as cursed as a sinner from birth, was a beggar at the side of the road. And yet he was the one, a blind beggar, who was the one who was not only given his sight, but when he could see, as we'll see when we get to the later bits of the passage, when he could see, had more spiritual insight in his fingernail than all of the priests and the Pharisees and the Jewish people that were arguing with him put together. There's a beautiful summary which we will get to when they argue with the man. And they start criticizing Jesus and saying, well, he can't be from God, blah, blah, blah. Verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, 
I was blind, but now I see. And you know, that's all anybody can ever really say. I don't have all the answers to all the questions. I'm not that smart. I don't have answers that will have Richard Dawkins reeling with my intellectual prowess. I don't have a solution for every question or a smart answer that will satisfy everything. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And you probably could have had a much more interesting time around the table if I'd asked you to talk about not the physical transformation of hair or clothes or appearance or whatever, but the difference that it made when Jesus came into your life, for those of you who have asked Jesus into your life. The difference that you began to see, the difference that other people began to see. And for some people, not all, because some people's journeys are slow and steady and there's not much apparent transformation. The change can be a slow, steady burn on the inside. But for other people, there are huge turnaround life changes. And suddenly people are saying things like, wow, you look amazing. Wow, you look so different. Or what's happened to you? I read a little post that Kenny Borthwick, who used to preach regularly at clan gathering, he's now retired, sadly, through ill health, but still preaches occasionally. But he wrote a little post on Facebook yesterday, and he was remembering a time when he was at Scripture Union Camp, and Colin Sinclair, who's currently the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, was his tent leader. <laughs> and he went as a, as, a, as a boy who was not from a Christian family, and he didn't know anything about Jesus, really. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't yet a Christian. And yet he wrote in his little post, I remember looking at Colin and thinking, he said, and I know it sounds like a, an age-old, hackneyed, worn-out phrase, Whatever he's got, I want it. Whatever he's got, I want it. And relax, believers, because you don't have to be in control of that. You do have to walk according to the truth of it. You do have to let it shine. You do have to polish it up. But the bit where other people will look at you or be around you and say, whatever she's got, I want some of that. That's what Jesus' Spirit does. That's not your responsibility. And so Jesus didn't answer their question. But then he gave, if you like, both a reassuring answer and a challenging answer. A reassuring answer because suffering is not the result of sin. Neither this man nor his parents. Okay? So when bad stuff happens and you're sitting there asking yourself, what have I done? It's because of this. It's because of that. He doesn't love me. I know it's all, you know, there's so much sin in my life. I'm such a failure. I'm such a disaster. Just stop, okay? It's not the reason the Father loves you in the first place, because you're good enough, because you got it right. You're loved by the Father because you're made in His image. You're a chip off the old block. You may be a very dirty, grubby chip that waits to be cleaned and renewed. You may be a chip like a, 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 a kind of pre-cut and polished diamond 
like some rough stone that only a gemstone collector would recognize for what it is and be able to cut and polish in a way that would bring out the best. That may be what you're like, but you're a chip off the old block and the Father is a collector and a refiner and a polisher. And so neither this man nor his parents sinned because suffering doesn't happen to us because of sin. God did not go to all the lengths of sending his son at great cost and suffering within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. It was shared pain on the cross. He did not go through all of that because he was desperate to smite or bring suffering. He went through all of that in order to take upon himself judgment, condemnation, in order that instead he might offer you grace, in order that instead he might offer you healing. The signs of the kingdom that flowed through Jesus were not smiting or suffering. They were the removal of sickness. Every time the kingdom encounters sickness or suffering or sin or death or problem, then the response was that the kingdom would win and the sin and the suffering would have to back off. This happens so that the glory of God might be, the works of God might be displayed in him. And sometimes the works of God are displayed spectacularly, as with this man, in healing miracle. And sometimes the works of God are displayed spectacularly as people trust God through a situation of, of uh, impairment or suffering that doesn't change. I've mentioned my good friend Rosalind, who God used to lead me into ministry, who is blind and, and a phenomenal character, a passionate Christian, Bible in Braille in about 137 volumes. I once said to her, how come you know Scripture so well, Rosalind? She said, if your Bible was in 137 volumes, you'd memorize it too. She was fearless. I once led her, ha, led her through the streets of Edinburgh to catch a train. She was just about dragging me. She was charging ahead. Phenomenal woman of incredible passion, undaunted, undetermined, and not for one moment did she wallow in self-pity because she was blind or blame God or asked questions. She probably had when she was young, but she'd come to know the Lord and had embraced her situation and was open to whatever the Lord would do with her. But while she was still blind, she wasn't going to let it hold her back. I'm sure some of you uh, will have seen or heard speak on, on YouTube or whatever the story of uh, Nick Vujicic, Australian man from Melbourne in Australia who was born without arms and legs. Phenomenal speaker. You should just Google life without limbs if you've never heard of him. You know, a guy who when he was eight tried to, throw, tried to drown himself, uh, who was overcome with depression and, and just self-loathing, whose uh, father, when he was born, had to leave the delivery room to throw up. He was so appalled at the sight of his son. And yet a young man who, from that place of self-loathing and, and probably finding it acutely difficult just to, to survive, never mind fit in, became a believer in Jesus. And no, he has not sprouted arms and legs. 
that he is an incredible guy. It's never held him back from learning to surf, skydive, water ski, do a whole incredible number of things. He just gets stuff adapted. He's married now. I checked the last... When I first heard of Nick Wojcicki, he he'd just got engaged, this lovely uh, American girl, I think. And, and then the next time I looked, he was, he was, they were expecting their first child, and I thought, oh, that's fantastic. I checked yesterday, he's now got four children, so, you know. And he's a passionate Christian whose, whose message is that there is absolutely no reason to let anything that is seen by you or by other people as a disability hold you back because anything given to God can be redeemed and transformed and turned into something that he can use. But it has to begin with the giving it to God and the absolute belief that whatever broken, damaged thing there might be, he can take it and use it. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent him. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. A little echo of what he said as those torches were lit. I am the light of the world. And so to this man who was sentenced to live in permanent night, he spoke those words within his hearing and then he made a mud saliva pat and put it on his eyes. Now, you know, we might reel at the prospect of that. The man who was blind had no idea. He just felt something probably slightly uh, warm and moist going on his eyes. He didn't know what was happening. I just love the imagery of it, though. You know, let's just pause for one little moment and think about Jesus, the Word made flesh. Let's pause for a moment and think about the fact that Jesus took human form. What is human form? The first man, Adam. Adam just means earth or dirt, soil. So, dirt man. (laughs) Adam was the first dirt man made of the earth. Sorry, Adam. Well, there's two Adams. No, there's three Adams in here today. But we're all Adam, made from the dirt of the earth. We're made from the dirt of the earth. And Jesus came to be both man and God. Because as he took that little bit of dirt, a little echo moment of when God took some of the dirt of the earth and and formed a man out of it and then breathed into it. There was a little, if you like, recreation in that moment because mixed in to that little pack of glob of mud that went on that guy's eyes were the dirt of the earth and some divine DNA in the saliva. God and man together a little symbol, if you like, in a blob of mud of Jesus himself, a little recreation from the God who took the dirt before and moistened it and molded it and breathed into it, a little recreation put on the man's eyes. 
I was thinking about this with you in mind, actually, Adam. You can rejoice in your nickname, Goop. Because actually, if that little blob of mud was to resemble anything, it's probably Goop. And so you can just take that nickname as, you know, a little symbol of the fact that you as an Adam, a man of the earth, are a man who is infused, infused with the Spirit of God, with Jesus, the living water. And so actually, Goop is a good picture, right? Not just a man, but a man with Jesus in the mix. And so that's a good name for all of us, but only he gets to use it because someone here at some point gave it to him and it's stuck, but then mud does that. (laughs) And off to the pool of Siloam. So Jesus, who said, we will turn night into day because I am the light of the world in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, sent the man off to the pool of Siloam where they gathered the water that reminded the people every day of God's provision in places of desert desperation, of life and survival and hope and healing. And the man went and washed a blind beggar who could do nothing but receive whatever it was that Jesus. Notice this man is one of the very few. I haven't checked. I wonder if he's the only one, the only one recorded who is healed without coming and saying, have mercy on me, or calling out, or asking for a miracle, or Jesus saying, what do you want me to do? In other words, there's nothing here that tells us anything about this man's state of faith whatsoever. He simply receives everything that happens to him. But the response is that when some stranger put mud on his eyes, instead of just regarding it as just maybe another little bit of abuse from some Mickey taker, having a laugh at the blind man in the street, there was something about this man and what he did. Perhaps the tenderness or the way he spoke, perhaps the reputation that went before him, which meant that when this man heard from Jesus, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, he went. He did what Jesus said. And Jesus needs any of us if we are to see and to see what he wants us to see. Got to be ready to go where we're sent and do what he tells us. And this man went to a place where he knew he needed to wash And sometimes that's the thing that Jesus tells us. He stands in front of us and he tells us, you need to wash. (laughs) You need to wash. And I've just taken a shower. It's not that that I'm smelling. (laughs) And he goes to the place which stands for being sent in obedience. And he washes there and he comes back seeing His night turned into day. His darkness now flooded with light. Water suddenly releasing in his life a whole new world he'd never seen. And other people were so amazed at the transformation because a man who perhaps had white eyes, I don't know, a man who who certainly would walk in that way that blind people walk where they don't need to look ahead and so their head or face is in another place or there's a vacancy in their look 
was suddenly engaged, was suddenly seeing what was going on, was suddenly changed in his appearance. It's a picture of the transformation that Jesus brings and longs to bring and wants to bring to the people around you in this life who don't yet know him. And all this man knew was that the man they called Jesus, he didn't even really know him yet, made some mud, and he told me to go and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see it was that simple. Two chapters of complicated arguments from people who thought they had all the answers, and Jesus encountered somebody who had some pretty basic need. And in that place of desperation, that place of basic need, the man just did what Jesus said, and he found that it worked. I don't need to say much more than that. Except sometimes we just get too smart, too reliant on what we know or think we know, too full of uh, our own stuff, to remember to listen to what Jesus is saying or to come honestly with the brokennesses and the things that actually we know are dry or desiccated or empty or just not working. The things that are broken in our lives that we're asking ourselves, what's the point? Or the sufferings when we say, well, what did I do? Or who caused it? or we're angry with God because of something that other people did, or, or something that just comes from the fallenness of this broken world, which is far from what God intended. And he sent Jesus to redeem it and us. But it begins with us simply putting our hand in the hand of Jesus and letting him put himself on our eyes, which is what that blob of mud represents in some ways. And going and letting him wash us because it's only if we are washed in him, in his death and resurrection, in the cross on which he bore our guilt and shame, that we will be able to see and see again. I have had enough elderly relatives who've gone through operations from cataract. You know what cataract is, right? It's the thickening of the membrane, and you know, I get nervous when I talk about medical stuff because Lewis will come and tell me afterwards I was wrong. I checked the stuff about bones, but we'll talk about that later on. But you need surgery because your visit vision becomes opaque, and it's a steady process, and you don't necessarily notice it. And your deterioration of vision can be corrected by having your cataracts removed. Well, I think, you know, for Christians, there's a form of spiritual cataract that can happen where we just get a little bit complacent or we just take Jesus for granted or we just know he's there, but I don't really need to talk to him or I don't really need to read his word. I don't really need to engage with him much. He's just kind of there in the background somewhere, handy when I need him. But actually... Maybe you need to ask him to renew your vision too. You say, well, I'm already a Christian. I already believe. I already know Jesus. Great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And I mean that. But is your vision opaque? 
Is your sight slightly dull? Are the things of God less exciting or joy-filled than they used to be? Are you going through the motions? Is it all a wee bit dull? Well, if it is, tell him that because you know it's not meant to be like that. And ask him to show you. Ask him to break you if need be. Ask him to put mud on your eyes and send you where you need to go so that you may see again with a fullness of light and of joy that will transform everything and make everything else pale into shadow and insignificance compared to the glory of knowing God.